tonight when our service comes to a close, and because our focus is going to be on Psalm 9, I want to give you a little heads up that we're going to be singing Psalm 9 as our closing song, and it's going to be to the tune of How Firm a Foundation. And so I think that's a fitting and appropriate capstone for our time in the Word of God tonight. So please open in your Bibles to Psalm 9. Psalm 9. I ask the questions as we begin tonight. Where do you go and to whom do you turn when you're looking for justice? I'm talking, of course, about the kind of justice when people have been so wronged and whose situations need to be righted, where the wicked appear to go unpunished and simply must be punished by someone or ones at some point, and where the oppressed and the afflicted are greatly troubled, with seemingly no one looking out for them, even when they are at these very moments of oppression and affliction pleading for our help. Where do you go? To whom do you turn? For all the injustices of the world, all the wicked acts of mankind, all the oppressions, all the afflictions, of this life. Psalm 9 gives us the answer. It gives us one of the clearest answers, in fact, that you will ever have regarding God's answers to life's unfairness. Let's read together Psalm 9. As I said this morning when we read this scripture in our standing together to read the Word of God, It says, to the choir master, according to Muth Laban, which, by the way, is translated set to the death of a son. Now, it's probably a musical or liturgical term, but that's what it is translated with or by. And we don't know. It's, in a sense, lost to us as to what that may mean. But this is a psalm of David. That's what it says. And then it says, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praises to your name, O Most High. When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before your presence. For you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. You have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy came to an end in everlasting ruins. Their cities you rooted out. The very memory of them has perished. But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice, and he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the peoples with uprightness. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, 
a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among the peoples his deeds. For he who avenges or requires blood is mindful of them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me. O you who lift me up from the gates of death, that I may recount all your praises, that in the gates of the daughter of Zion I may rejoice in your salvation. The nations have sunk in the pit that they made, in the net that they hid, their own foot has been caught. The Lord has made himself known. He has executed judgment. The wicked are snared in the work of their own hands. Higayon, Selah. The wicked shall return to Sheol, all the nations that forget God. For the needy shall not always be forgotten, and the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. Arise, O Lord. Let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men. Selah. This is, this is the answer for all of the injustices of the world. For all the crime against the innocent. For all the senseless murders and violence. For all the oppression around the world. For all the battles where a country has been visited upon by enemies through no fault of their own. The list could go on and on and on. And I suspect that if David is speaking about some of his battles or those of his kinsmen who have been killed senselessly, where there's oppression and affliction, whatever the case may be, David is praising God for who God is and how God responds. And as I mentioned this morning when we read this psalm, it's King David looking at all the injustices of the world, all the oppression, all the affliction, all the enemies of God, and he gives us what I call a theology proper lesson about who God is. Theology proper is one of those categories within the subdivisions of systematic theology. Usually the first thing that you hear or read in a systematic theology book is what they call prolegomena. Prolegomena is just a word that speaks of that which comes before. And usually it's an introductory chapter or note about how that person is going to proceed in their instruction or their writing about theology in general. These are my first commitments. These are my presuppositions. This is how I'm going to argue theologically. That's prolegomena. And then usually... Not always, but usually the chapter that comes next is bibliology, the study of the Bible, the doctrine of God's Word. And that's usually because the only way we can find out about the other doctrines in systematic theology is through the Bible. 
So usually that comes next. And then, generally speaking, that which comes next is called the doctrine of God, or otherwise known as theology proper. Theology proper in the sense that you and I need to find out, first and foremost, through the Bible, with our prolegomena, with our presuppositions, with our first principles, who is God? What is He like? How does He operate? What are His attributes? And how do those attributes explain the character of God? And do you realize that here in Psalm 9, this is what David is doing for his own people? He's the king, remember? He's the king who, physically speaking, is sitting on the throne in Zion. And he is saying, I want as king to let all of you know who our God is. He's speaking to his kingdom. And he's telling the children of Israel about God. That's what this psalm is all about. And what he says here is that I want you to know as the sweet psalmist of Israel who God is like, who we can praise through our singing, and what he says about the character of God. And before we get to these characteristics, these attributes of God, I want you to see what David himself does when he considers these awesome attributes of God. Notice again what he says in verses 1 and 2. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exult in you. Exult is rejoice. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. So whatever he's going to tell us about the person of God, he wants that to be eliciting in our hearts the praise that is due Yahweh's name. I'm going to tell you, he says, about the character of God, and this should be your response, praising him. Look at verses 10 and 11. And those who know your name put their trust in you. That is a banner statement, isn't it? Those who know your name, those who respond to your attributes because they explain who you are. It gives us insight into your character, what kind of God you are. And he says, those who know your name, your name equivalent to all that you are, they put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among the peoples his deeds. And someone might say, I thought David was enthroned in Zion. Well, he is on a human level, but David knows that even on a physical level and most importantly on a spiritual level, that while he is their king in Zion, there is a greater king above him. And that king is to be praised. People are are called, commanded to speak about his doings, his deeds. And then look at verse 14. That I may recount all your praises, that in the gates of the daughter of Zion I may rejoice in your what? Your salvation, your deliverance. I mean, the the Israelites' steps were constantly being dogged by intruders, by enemies. And you know, that's true even to this very day. There's a massive conflict in the Middle East And part of that conflict, in fact, a large part of that conflict, surrounds the idea that Israel has, at least as a small group of people, some part of that property in Jerusalem 
and in other places, not in Gaza and not on the, the west end of the ocean there, but certainly Israel has a major portion that every other nation, especially Arab nations of the world, want desperately. It's happening even to our own day. Enemies besieging Israel. So it's true in David's day, and it's true in our day. And what David is going to do in this psalm, so as to rehearse with and for Israel the mighty character of God, he stands rejoicing for Israel and for all believers in God for that matter, because this is the Christian scriptures which are given for us as well. And he says, I want to show you the various ways that God's character can be celebrated. And, if I've, and as I have meditated on this psalm, I see seven attributes of God which David recounts here. These are the seven things that he wants his people to know. And here's the first one. Yahweh, the I Am, the great I Am, is the righteous judge against the enemy. Yahweh is the righteous judge against the enemy. Look at verses 3 and 4. David says you ought to praise God because he is the righteous judge against the enemy. Notice verse 3. When my enemies, David says, turn back. They've been turned back, as it were, by Yahweh himself. And here's what they do. They stumble and perish before whose presence? God's presence. Not simply David's. Because David knows that every battle he was involved with in a righteous sense is the battle for the Lord. That's why the Bible says the battle belongs to the Lord. And he says, these enemies, they turn back, they stumble and perish before your presence, for you have maintained my just cause. And then here it is, you have sat on the throne giving what? Righteous judgment. Here's the attribute of the righteous judge against the enemy, not just of Israel, but the righteous judge against the enemies of God himself. I mean, we don't know precisely what particular battle King David is referring to here or battles, but we do know this. Yahweh has turned back the enemies of Israel, enemies who stumbled and perished, the Bible says here, before Yahweh's presence, which means for them and for us, of course, that God is a righteous judge who either in this life or in the life to come already has and yet also will maintain what is right. And do you know that in a world of a whole bunch of wrongs, God will right all the wrongs that have been done. Let that sink into your minds. I mean, every time you and I turn on our television or we see on the internet something in which you and I, in our heart of hearts, cannot believe, it's some scene, it's some report, you and I cannot scarcely watch the news without some murder, some destruction, some mayhem that's occurring either in our own city or our own country or our own world in which you and I, in hushed tones, either say to ourselves or those in the room with us when we're watching, what's going on? 
when will this ever end? I've heard it either out of my own lips or the lips of my wife. What's our world, what? Coming to. I mean, it is, it is rife, our world, with senseless violence. With the kind of perpetrating of evil against those who are defenseless. I just watched the other day on the internet some lady who was in a church who appeared to be standing at a table with her purse on her arm and it appears as though she might have been wanting to give an offering of some kind. I don't know the church situation. I don't know exactly what happened. I'm not even sure where. And two people, a man and a woman, came in and the man grabbed the purse and the woman hit the lady with her fist on the side of the head and she went down. And the police were asking for any leads about this senseless violence. And this was an older woman she was obviously defensive or defenseless and she could not respond at all to the perpetration of that evil against her and begs the question again what's our world coming to here's david's answer god does what is right he's the righteous judge and somebody's going to immediately say well he didn't do it right there he didn't do it with the example that you gave yes but he will he will in his time, and according to his own judgment, and with his own hand, because what does that text say in verse 4? God has forever sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. You see, that's our first look at theology proper, the doctrine of God, the attributes of God which help us define who our God really is. He is that righteous judge and we need that affirmation when you see the senselessness of it all we need to be reminded as David tells us here God is a righteous judge he's going to do what's right when Yahweh when the I am is involved he's the righteous judge who's committed to doing what's right and don't think my friends for a millisecond that there isn't a God our God who is ignoring or overlooking or otherwise unable to come to the aid of his people who are being attacked by others. He is there and he is not silent. And he may not do it in the way that we think. He may not do it in the immediate way that when we pr presume he should. But he will choose to do it. Sometimes he does it through human judges. Sometimes he does it himself. But either way, our God shows himself as a righteous judge. Look at Psalm 7 verse 8. What does it say in Psalm 7, 8? The Lord judges the peoples. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness, David says, and according to the integrity that is in me. Oh, let the evil of the wicked come to an end, and may you establish the righteous. You test the minds and hearts, O righteous God. My shield is with God. God is in charge. Make no mistake about it. It may, it may look at times to you and me like he's idle, but he's not. Look at Psalm 50. Psalm 50, verse 6. Write some of these passages down if you have a pen and paper. Psalm 50, verse 6. Rehearse these verses to yourself when you see senseless violence. Psalm 50, verse 6. The heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is what? 
judge. God is judge. Look at chapter 67. Chapter 67 of, of the Psalms. 67 verse 4. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth. God's guiding the process. It may not look like that to you, and it may not always seem like that to me, but he is. And you know, there's going to come a time at the end of time, according to Revelation 19. Listen to what it says, verse 11. This is, of course, talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to Revelation 19, 11. Then I saw heaven open, that's John the Apostle, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, that's a signal for holiness, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, all the peoples of the world. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. No, no, make no mistake about it. God is the righteous judge and he will judge with equity. He will do what he says. We ought to praise God for that. We ought to praise God for that. And as our world gets worse and worse, because that's what Paul told Timothy, as the end comes, as the end becomes near, the situation will grow from bad to worse. You and I need the antidote in our own hearts and in our own attitudes when we see these things getting from bad to worse and we say, praise be to God, he's the righteous judge. That's David's first theology proper lesson for us tonight. He's the righteous judge. Number two, Yahweh is the avenger upon the wicked. Yahweh, the great I am, is the avenger upon the wicked. Verses five and six. You have rebuked the nations, knowing, does David, that the whole of the nations he's referring to here. What about the world? People are saying, what about the world and all of its evils? David says, I've got an answer. Yahweh's the avenger upon the wicked of the world, of the nations. You have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy came to an end in everlasting ruins. Their cities you rooted out. The very memory of them has perished. God is an avenger. He will avenge the righteous. And that's the second attribute of God in our theology proper. And it's even, by the way, I think somewhat more pronounced than the first. You say, how so? Because this says that Yahweh is the active avenger. He's actively avenging, taking upon vengeance of the wicked. And, and I want you to notice the, the three verbs that are there, which in the Hebrew text are present perfects, which means it's a stated act with continuing results. 
It's happened and it will continue to happen. And here they are. Number one, you have rebuked the nations. Number two, you have made the wicked perish. Number three, you have blotted out their name forever and ever. This is, this is massive. This is total. I mean, notice, you've rebuked the nations. You've said, you shall not do what you're doing. And then he says, you have made the wicked perish. You've dealt with them, and you are, and you shall. And you've blotted out their name forever and ever. And you know, even some of the names in our Old Testament chronology, some of these people groups, they're gone. The memory of them are gone forever. They're done. Who knows about them now? Because of their wickedness, they're finished. And look at the three results. Number one, the enemy came to an end in what? Everlasting ruins. My wife and I, when we went to Israel, we've gone there twice, and it's an amazing experience. We also visited in the Mediterranean some of the cities of Paul. It was just an unforgettable trip. Both times we went, it was it was just incredible. And one on one of our trips, we saw the old ancient city of Pompeii. Absolutely destroyed. Just amazing. It's a thriving city, a metropolis, gone. Through natural means, of course, but that is a providential God. Doing what he does, however he desires to do it. I thought about that. The enemy came to an end in everlasting ruins. That's the city of Pompeii. It's in everlasting ruins. It's now a monument to the ruin of the place. And then he says, there are cities you rooted out. You dealt with them. And the very memory of them has perished. You say, is that what we should be praying for? I mean, this, this is a psalm. It's a prayer, right? It's not only a song, but it's a prayer of David. And he's extolling God. And he's saying, you've done this, you've done this, you've done this. And we say, hooray! Yeah, you get them. And that's what we call at times, and in some of these psalms in our Psalter, the imprecatory psalms, right? Prayers of imprecation. God, deal with them. And sometimes the Christian church has a hard time with some of them. Like one of the psalms that says, Oh, how blessed when God, through your people, take the Babylonian children and dash them against the rocks. And somebody says, Oh, that's not Christian. You know, if you were there, and if you had seen what they had done to the Israelite children, you might have been thinking something entirely differently. God has built within the fabric of society this concept that he is the active avenger upon the wicked and he shall deal with those who do violence senselessly to others. Now you say, well, what about us as, as believers? I mean, are you telling us this is the Christian scriptures? This is what we're supposed to do? No, we extol the character of God. We rely on the character of God. We say about our God, he will deal with it. And we don't take vengeance upon ourselves, right? We don't go out in our own vigilante force and try to do God's bidding. What we do is what Romans twelve seventeen says, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. 
Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So that's a good word. That's a word from our New Testaments that tells us, in unmistakable language, don't take vengeance upon yourself. Allow room for the wrath of God. He's able to do it himself and in the time frame he has set. You say, well, what happens if, if the government becomes so corrupt and, and they take away our liberties and, and, and then they start messing with us and our worship services or maybe even of our, our lives and our families? Well, look at 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, this is, this is the New Testament way of responding to such evil. This is what we're to do. This is what God calls us to do. And it's not contradictory to, to establishing and affirming and praising God for his vengeance upon his enemies, to be the avenger upon the wicked. Look at 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake, notice that, for the Lord's sake, to every human institution whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. And we're all about saying, yes, the evil need to be punished and those who do good ought to be praised, they ought to be thanked. Verse 15, for this is the will of God that by doing good, by doing righteous things, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people, verse 16, who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. And then this, verse 18, servants, Slaves, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. You see, you can suffer unjustly at the very same time that you're praising God that he's going to avenge all wrongs. Those things aren't contradictory in nature. They're not mutually exclusive. Verse 20, For what credit is there if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? Uh, somebody who's not following the will of God, who's not doing what God commands, and they sin in the harsh treatment against them, and when they sin, this word says, there's no credit there. By the way, the word credit is also the word for grace. There's no grace there. You think you endure the mistreatment by your own sin and response? That's not virtuous. But, verse 20, latter part, if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example. Here's our ultimate example here's the arch example so that you might follow in his steps what did he do verse 22 he committed no sin neither was deceit found in his mouth when he was reviled he did not revile in return when he suffered he did not threaten but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly which goes back to our first attribute god is a righteous judge he can take care of my circumstances I don't have to sin as though 
I am trying to right the wrong myself and I take as a vigilante my own situation, my own predicament, and I try to make wrongs right, I actually can entrust, as Jesus did himself, myself to God who judges righteously. God's an avenger. I'll let him do his work and I'll praise him even when my situation looks rather bleak even when I don't know what they're doing. I don't know why they're doing it. I'm confused, I'm hurt, I'm mad, I'm upset, and I want to take vengeance upon those who are hurting me or my family or my country or my world. But we leave room for the wrath of God because God is the avenger. My theology proper tells me that God will do what he wants to do, what he needs to do in his time and in his place. Number three, Number three, Yahweh is the punisher of injustice. Make no mistake about it, my friends. Yahweh is the punisher of injustice. Look at verses seven and eight. But the Lord sits enthroned for how long? How long does it say? Forever. That, my friends, is a fairly long time. never taken a day off. The God of Israel never sleeps nor slumbers. He sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice and he judges the world with righteousness, with right thinking, right acting, right doing. He judges the peoples, the peoples of the world, all the people groups of the world with uprightness. Do you see those characteristics of our punishing God? This one who sits enthroned forever? Look at it. He has established his throne for what? Justice. What's the next word? He judges the world with righteousness. Third word. He judges the peoples with uprightness. Justice, my friends. Righteousness, dear people. Uprightness, beloved. This is our God. That's why when Abram was hearing those angelic beings saying, get out of Sodom, get out. And Abram said, will you destroy the city if there are certain righteous men? And you remember he went descendingly down. If there are this many, and if there are this many, and if there are this many, and it basically got down to him and his family, right? And Genesis 18, 25 says this, Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is right? You ought to memorize that verse, Genesis 18, 25. And you ought to say to yourself, whenever you see all the injustices of the world, just like I started, where do you turn? Who's in charge? What's God doing? What's the plan? Why aren't they dealt with? We live in a microwave culture. We want everything to be done in 22 seconds or less, right? You pull up to a a drive-thru and you place your order, even at a lovely drive-thru like (laughs) Chick-fil-A. And they seem so courteous. In fact, every time you say something and when you thank them, they say, my pleasure. Isn't Isn't it interesting? And when you go into Chick-fil-A, they have this music That's Christian music. 
and it's playing and it's so serene and lovely and so many people like their food, that's why they're in business. And when you go there, you think it's Shangri-La. There, there's, there's nothing that could go wrong here. And when you go and you place your order, and when it's really, really busy, and even though they've got the girls out there with the iPads and they're trying to do it as quickly as they can, and then you get to the drive through and you get up to the window, and it takes a long time, and you and I are very upset. That's the culture we live in. It's fast. It's furious. We want God to act. Punish all of the injustices. And here's our answer. Will not the judge of all the earth do rightly? He'll do what he does when he does it, and it'll be done with justice, justice and righteousness and uprightness. And by the way, contextually, those three verbs of verses 8 and 9, their future in their tense or their time frame, and it means that God will provide ultimately and finally a restoration of all justice, all righteousness, all uprightness to all wrongs. He will vanquish all his foes. He'll punish all injustices and he will sovereignly rule forever with vindication toward all those who have suffered at the hands of of the world's enemies of truth and righteousness. Can you trust in that kind of God? I mean, that's the question. Can I trust that kind of God? And you say, well, when you put it that way, certainly. But in the heat of the moment, and in the fast food world, I want it done now. And even that's with the best motives. I hate it when God's name is taken in vain. I don't like it when I see God's children suffering. Sure, but you and I have to learn in our theology proper that God is the punisher of all injustices, but he'll do it when he sovereignly decides the time is right. And it could be now or it could be in eternity. Number four. Number four. God is not only the righteous judge. He's not only the avenger upon the wicked. He's not only the punisher of injustice, but number four, he's the stronghold for the oppressed. Look at verse 9. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. Boy, there's pathos all over that verse. There's great emotion there. Do your, do your hearts burn within you with empathy and sadness and even outwardly with tears when you see children oppressed. And my daughters, Lexa and Lisa, have mentioned to me the, those two experiences in Haiti, especially in some of those special needs orphanages where some of those kids have been dropped off by their parents because, number one, they don't think they can care for them. Number two, they also, because of that culture, believe in a voodoo theology that some of those children who have those special needs have been cursed by God. That's why they are the way they are. And can you imagine how those little ones are going to grow up believing in that theological culture that they're cursed by God? That's why there's such a wonderful ministry to those people. And there needs to be so much more of it. 
They are oppressed. And yet, what, is, what does it say in our Bibles? Yahweh is a stronghold. That means he's a place of refuge. He's a high tower. There's security to those who are oppressed, to those who are distressed with seemingly no one to help deliver them in their plea for help. We ought to do what we can, not only in our city and in our country, but around the world to help these oppressed people. And sometimes God uses us to help them. And that's David's theology proper. Look at what he says in verses 10 and 11. And those who know your name, that you are a stronghold. That's, that's one of God's names. That's describing who he is. And those who know your name, like the name stronghold, put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, for means because, I'm going to explain it. For you, O Lord, why I put my trust in you, for you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who do what? Who seek you. It's this God of compassion. And not mere compassion, as great as that is, but a compassionate opportunity for those who are oppressed to run to God and be safe. To have security. To run into that high tower of strength. No one can care for the oppressed like our God. That's what David's saying. They're desperate for protection and they cry for mercy. And this is what, this is what David says. No wonder he says, Sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among the peoples his deeds. And here's, here's one of them. I will not forsake you. Did you know that's an oft-repeated phrase in our Old Testament? I will not leave you, nor what? Forsake you. Deuteronomy 31.6. Joshua 1.5. Psalm 94, 14. And you know it's also in our New Testaments. Hebrews 13, 5. This is, this is our God. This is the God of the ages. This is, this is who He is. God is our stronghold so that we shall not be forsaken. Do you believe that? You know, sometimes it's hard to believe such a thing. God, it appears as though you have forsaken me. With this or that scenario in my life? But what it says here in Hebrews 13, 5, keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Now, listen to what it says in Psalm 9. God will not forsake you, but it's those who seek you. Remember that? 
those who seek you. And that's why Hebrews 11.6 says this, And without faith it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. You see, if you seek God by faith, you become a part of the redeemed, and as the redeemed, you'll never be forsaken by God. Oh, it may look like it. It may seem like it. It may seem like the oppressed are the ones who are cast aside, the ones who are marginalized, but it's not true. God has a a very special place in His heart for the oppressed, the poor, the needy, the distressed. Yes, He does. The Old Testament especially, prophet after prophet after prophet speaks about what Israel isn't doing, what Israel should be doing, and how God sometimes, even when Israel isn't doing what they need to do, He steps in Himself and shepherds His people. The widow, the orphan. And by the way, was there not also someone who at, time, who, who at one time was in fact forsaken? What does it say in Psalm 22.1? Mark 15, 46, uh, 15, 34. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know, he did that for that moment to turn his face away so that his wrath could be visited upon his own son, the Lord Jesus. He forsook him in that moment so that you and I would never be forsaken. He gave up his own son forsaking him in that moment so that you and I would never be forsaken. What a love. What a commitment. He's a stronghold. Number five. He's also the merciful one is Yahweh toward the afflicted. Look at verses 12 and 13. For he who avenges blood. That may be a A bit of a tough translation to understand. For he who requires blood. In other words, God's always going to deal with those who take blood by taking their blood. For he requires blood. For he who avenges blood, he is mindful of them. Who's the them? The afflicted. Because he goes on to say, he does not forget the cry of the afflicted. Not at all. No, he won't. You can count on that. And David needs that at that very moment. And that's why he says, be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me. O you who lift me up from the gates of death. David, in battle, and for the pursuit of his own life by Saul, and then by his own son Absalom, and by so many others, was on the brink of death constantly. There were people even in Israel like Absalom, his own son, who wanted his throne. Constantly under suspicion, constantly under attack, constantly a man of war. No wonder, he says, and be gracious to me, O Lord, see my affliction. And I say he's the merciful one because that's what grace is. It's It's the mercy that I need from God. And he's going to require of the bloodthirsty that they be punished Because God is always and forever mindful of the afflicted, the mistreated, the poor. 
And the Bible says here on the authority of this word, the word of God, he does not forget their cry. Boy, what an affirmation of our God. He will never forget your cry. That's why you go to him. That's why you talk to him. And that's why you praise him. That's why David says, be gracious to me, O Lord. I need your mercy. We, we could say it like this from our New Testaments, right? Ephesians 2, 4 and 5. God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. This is, this is a fantastic theology proper lesson. This is right out of the Bible. This is, this is an attribute of God. He is a merciful God. He is a gracious God. No wonder we praise Him. And, and no wonder David says in verse 14, that I may recount all your praises that in the gates of the daughter of Zion I may rejoice in your salvation. That's why, my friends, we sing to God. That's why every service we sing at least one, two, three, four, five songs because Psalm 107 verse 2 says, Let the redeemed of the Lord do what? Say so. Say it. That's why we sing with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs in our hearts to God. That's why we do what we do. That's why you come here. Because in addition to the fellowship, in addition to giving in an offering of our thankfulness to God, in addition to our prayers, in addition to the hearing of the word of God, it's also for collective praise. You know, my wife and I were talking about this. We, we see when we drive, and so do you. And I see from my caveman office with my desk looking out of my three-car garage, people walking by every day, and I see them in droves, and they walk by, and so many of them are walking their dogs. And I've seen a pattern now, and I've seen a pattern with several people. I could tell you what they look like. I could tell you what hair color they have, because when I hear somebody walking by, I'll look up, because sometimes they are standing right in front of me when my head is down, and so I want to be prepared. And when I see them walk by, I see some of the same people every single day. And when I see them every single day walking by and they're walking their dog, you know what I often say to myself? Now look, I can't sort of generalize on every single one of them, but I assume some of them aren't Christians and I assume some of them don't go to church, but they are far more dedicated to their dogs than they are to God. They don't come here. But they're very regular with that dog. And they walk that dog, and they nourish those dogs, and they feed those dogs, and they love those dogs, and they couldn't do without those dogs. And I thought, how consistent, how consistent, how regular, how careful they are, how much they love an animal. And they would not be regular, they would not be consistent, they would not nourish their own lives on the words of the faith. They don't come here or anywhere else. And then you ask yourself the question, where do they go? To whom do they turn for justice? Do they look to God? Do they see the same television news reports that you and I do? Of course they do. 
And they might even be saying themselves, what's the world coming to? And here's the answer. It's not by being so careful about your dog. It's being careful about the things of God, about the person of God, about your theology proper, of what you think about God and how you worship God and how you go to the house of God, and how you praise this glorious God, and how you see him with all of these attributes and all of these character qualities, and your heart praises him. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Number six, Yahweh is the providential one among all the nations. Verses 15 to 17. The nations have sunk in the pit that they made, In the net that they hid, their own foot has been caught. The Lord has made himself known. He has executed judgment. The wicked are snared in the work of their own hands. The wicked shall return to Sheol, that's to the the grave, all the nations that, what? Forget God. Like people who are walking their dogs because they have no relationship with God. Now, that's not true of every dog walker. But it's true of so many of them. They forget God. They could care less about God. And they don't see His providence. They don't see Him executing His providential judgment upon the planet. And how does God do that? Sometimes with what we call retributive justice. They get what they deserve. They they build a trap to do harm to somebody else and they fall into the trap that they themselves have made. You ever seen this in Proverbs chapter 1? Proverbs chapter 1. This is exactly what David is talking about. And of course, it's all over our Bibles, but this is one example. Look at what Solomon is telling his son. He says in verse 10, My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, Come with us, let us lie in wait for blood. Let us ambush the innocent without reason. Isn't that what we're talking about tonight? All the injustices of the world? There are people like this in our world. Verse 12, Like Sheol, like the grave, let us swallow them alive and whole, like those who go down to the pit. We shall, all, we shall find all precious goods. We shall fill our houses with plunder. That means we'll get rich off of them that we're stealing from throw in your lot among us we will all have one purse and Solomon says to his son my son do not walk in the way with them hold back your foot from their paths for their feet run to evil and they make haste to shed blood for in vain is a net spread in the sight of any bird but these men lie in wait for their own blood they set an ambush for their own lives Such are the ways of everyone who is greedy for unjust gain. It takes away the life of its possessors. Isn't it true of those who are adulterers? Doesn't the Bible say, who's going to be an adulterer that doesn't have his own chest burned? There's a fire, and you're going to burn yourself. You think you're having a momentary time of pleasure, and it will be your ruin. And those who concoct all kinds of evil and they want to lie in wait for blood. And the Bible says that retributive justice, sometimes God meets it out directly upon a life by taking that person in a heart attack. Sometimes God does it in the life by those who have retributive justice done to them. They've done evil and in some providential way, God meets them with evil. 
That's what he's saying. That's what happens. Isn't that what happened to Haman in the book of Esther? Remember that? He wanted to do harm to God's people. He wanted to, he wanted to put Mordecai up on the gallows. And what happened to Haman? Retributive justice. That's right. If you forget God, you'll one day remember him as never before when he at that moment becomes your own judge. And it could happen now or it could happen in eternity. Number seven and finally, Yahweh is the hope for the needy and the poor. (laughs) He's the righteous judge. He's the avenger. He's the punisher. He's the stronghold. He's the merciful one. He's the providential one. And he's the hope for the needy and poor. Look at verse 18. For the needy shall not always be forgotten and the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. God's mindful of them. Every needy person, every poor person. And lest anyone think that God is asleep at the wheel or otherwise unconcerned or unmindful or distracted with the larger world affairs. David ends by proclaiming in his theology proper that Yahweh will never forget the needy. He will forever be the hope of the poor. And is he not truly our hope? Is he not truly our help? I keep going tonight because it seems that there are so many parallels to the book of Hebrews. And this is what it says in Hebrews chapter 2 about our Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to chapter 2, verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that is flesh and blood for us, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. God's our hope. He's our help. We're the offspring of Abraham too if we believe in Jesus Christ by faith according to Paul in Romans 4. And then this, verse 17 of Hebrews 2, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. What a hope. What a help. He's our God of hope. And chapter 4 says so wonderfully in chapter 4, verse 14, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, Let us hold fast our confession, our right doctrine, our theology proper. Hold fast to it. Don't lose those theological moorings. Don't be tempted to question the veracity of God, the judgment of God, the avenging of God, the punishment of God, the the hope of God, the help of God, the stronghold that God is, the providential one. Don't lose your grip on those things for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence 
draw near to the throne of grace. I love that term, the throne of grace. The throne is the seat of authority. It's the seat of power. Draw near to the authority of grace, to the power of grace, the one who is the dispenser of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Isn't that the needy? Isn't that the very definition of the needy? They need help in time for this grace to help them, the poor, the disadvantaged. And with all of that, David ends with this. Arise, O Lord. Let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord. Make them tremble before you, he says. Let the nations know they are but men. What a beautiful song to the praise of our God. And we too say, I know you do as well as I do. On this side of the cross, we hear the words of the Lord Jesus, Surely I am coming soon. And we say with the Apostle John, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Come and right all the wrongs of this world. And we have by faith the certainty that you will. Praise God. Let's pray together. Father, what a psalm. What a song to our hearts. We don't want to sit around and do nothing and spend our time on our own pleasures. We don't want to be involved with all of the stuff that will perish in this world. We want to be at church. We want to hear your word. We want to see how a psalm like this can lift our hearts to praise and recalibrate our thoughts and allow us to regrip on the truth. The truth of these seven attributes of your holy person. And we praise you because of it. We thank you for it. And now as we sing this psalm, may it be to your praise for all that you are and all that you do. Amen. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, and right all wrongs. In your name we pray. Amen.